0: All right, we will start with a summary of technology accelerators. Key points. Good to great organizations think differently about technology and technological change than mediocre ones. Good to great organizations avoid technology fads and bandwagons, yet they become pioneers in the application of carefully selected technologies. The key question about any technology is, does the technology fit directly with your hedgehog concept? If yes, then you need to become a pioneer in the application of that technology. If no, then you can settle for parity or ignore it entirely. The good-to-great companies use technology as an accelerator of momentum, not a creator of it. None of the good-to-great companies began their transformations with pioneering technology, yet they all became pioneers in the application of technology once they grasped how it fit with the three circles after they hit breakthrough. And after they hit breakthrough. You could have taken the same exact leading-edge technologies pioneered at the good-to-great companies and handed them to their direct comparisons for free, and the comparisons still would have failed to produce anywhere near the same results. That is definitely possible, but definitely not backed by actual facts and is a wholly inappropriate assertion, the way they state it as if it is, in fact, A fact. How a company reacts to technological change is a good indicator of its inner drive for greatness versus mediocrity. Great companies respond with thoughtfulness and creativity, driven by a compulsion to turn unrealized potential into results. Mediocre companies react and lurch about, motivated by fear of being left behind. Unexpected Findings. The idea that technological change is the principal cause and the decline of once great companies or the perpetual mediocrity of others is not supported by the evidence. Certainly a company can't remain a laggard and hope to be great, but technology by itself is never a primary root cause of either greatness or decline. So definitely something you already covered in this short summary, just rephrased. Across 84 interviews with good-to-great execs, fully 80% didn't even mention technology as one of the top five factors in the transformation. This is true even in companies famous for their pioneering application of technology, such as NuCore. And finally, crawl, walk, run can be a very effective approach, even during times of rapid and radical technological change. Chapter 8, The Flywheel and the Doom Loop. That's my favorite title so far. I don't know what a flywheel is. Should I look it up? You know, I usually do. I just don't think I'm going to. Okay, I will. Ooh, there's a place called Flywheel Sports. A flywheel... Oh, in Larchmont. That's why it was noteworthy. Flywheel is a mechanical device specifically designed to efficiently store rotational energy. Flywheels resist chain, resist changes in rotational speed by their moment of inertia. The amount of energy stored in a flywheel is proportional to the square of its rotational speed. All right, so it's something to do with, like, turning a wheel. (laughs) Does that help? Ooh, Igor Stravinsky gets this quote. Revolution means turning the wheel. Wow. He's mentioned the flywheel before. I think I picked an appropriate time to actually look it up, because I think we're really going to hit that wheel thing hard. Picture a heavy... Let me start again. Picture a huge heavy flywheel, a massive metal disc mounted horizontally on an axle about 30 feet. (laughs) He's going to get very literal with this description. That's really fucking funny. Um... I have a feeling, no matter how detailed the explanation though, it's probably going to lack in something, so I think it's still good that we looked it up. A massive metal disc mounted horizontally on an axle, about 30 feet in diameter, 2 feet thick, and weighing about 5,000 pounds. Now imagine that your task is to get the flywheel rotating on the axle as fast and as long as possible. Pushing with great effort, you get the flywheel to inch forward moving almost imperceptibly at first. You keep pushing, and after two or three hours of persistent effort, you get the flywheel to complete one entire turn. You keep pushing, and the flywheel begins to move a bit faster, and with continued great effort, you move it in around a second rotation. You keep pushing in consistent direction. Three turns, four, five, six, the flywheel speeds up, seven, eight. You keep pushing, nine, and ten. It builds momentum, eleven, twelve, moving faster with each turn, twenty, thirty, fifty, a hundred! Then at some point break through! The momentum of the thing kicks in your favor, hurling the flywheel forward, turn after turn, whoosh! Its own heavy weight working for you. You're pushing no harder than during the first rotation, but the flywheel goes faster and faster. Each turn of the flywheel builds upon work done earlier, compounding your investment of effort a thousand times faster then 10,000 then 100,000 then hu- then huge heavy disk f- flies forward the huge heavy disk flies forward with almost unstoppable momentum now someone comes along and asks what was the one big push that caused things to go so fast you wouldn't be able to answer it's just a nonsensical question. Was it the first push? The second? The fifth? The hundredth? No! It was all of them added together in an overall accumulation of effort applied in a consistent direction. Some pushes may have been bigger than others, but any single heave, no matter how large, reflects a small fraction of the entire cumulative effect upon the flywheel. Alright, so I think now we have a pretty good idea based on the uh explanation here and then the literal definition before it uses its own momentum uh for it and things get easier and faster because of the like uh you know because of the stored mechanical energy or whatever build up and breakthrough the flywheel image captures the overall feel of what it was like inside the companies as they went from good to great No matter how dramatic the end result, the good-to-great transformations never happened in one fell swoop. There was no single defining action, no grand program, no one killer innovation, no solitary lucky break, no wrenching revolution. I like this a lot. Good-to-great comes about by a cumulative process, step-by-step, action-by-action, decision-by-decision, turn-by-turn of the flywheel, that adds up to sustained and spectacular results you know he's not quite hitting this point but it's almost like a uh, it's almost like a buddhist thing it's like you have to do the work because you believe in it because you love it or whatever you know something close to that um because you do it well you have good people doing it that believe in it and you just do a good job and what really is important is that you're not results oriented Like so many things, he just hasn't, he's sort of danced around that. But what's really important about it is that you stick to your guns. I guess that's what he was saying when he's like, don't doubt that you'll come out of it. But, you know, I guess a more quote-unquote Eastern way to look at it is just like, enjoy doing a good job in itself, and then the results will follow. Yet to read media accounts of the companies, you might draw an entirely different conclusion. Often the media does not cover a company until the flywheel is already turning at a thousand rotations per minute. This entirely skews our perception of how such transformations happen, making it seem as if they jumped right through as some sort of an overnight metamorphosis. For example, August 27th, 1984, Forbes magazine published an article on Circuit City. Oh, pardon me, I'm going to check a text message. Ah, it's from my friend Dan. It said, we hired a new lesbian that looks just like you. That's funny. Forbes Magazine published an article on Circuit City. It was the first national-level profile ever published on the company. It wasn't that big of an article, just two pages. And it questioned whether Circuit City's recent growth could continue. Still, there it was, the first public acknowledgement that Circuit City had broken through. The journalist had just identified a hot new company, almost like an overnight success story. This particular overnight success story, however, had been more than a decade in the making. Alan Wurzel. Okay, come on. We know about Circuit City. All right, sorry. Uh, Alan Wurzel had inherited CEO responsibility from his father in 1973, with the firm close to bankruptcy. First, oh, thanks, Dad. First, he rebuilt his executive team and undertook an objective look at the brutal facts of reality, both internal and external. In 1974, still struggling with a crushing debt load, Wurzel and his team began to experiment with a warehouse showroom style of retailing, large inventories of name brands, discount pricing, and immediate delivery, and built a prototype of this model in Richmond, Virginia to sell appliances. In 76, the company began to experiment with selling consumer electronics in the warehouse showroom format, and in 77 it transformed the concept into the first ever Circuit City Store. In 1978, it began experimenting with cocaine. Uh, The concept met with success, and the company began systematically converting its stereo stores into Circuit City stores. In 82, with nine years of accumulated turns on the flywheel, Morcel and his team committed fully to the concept of the Circuit City Superstore. Over the next five years as it shifted entirely to this concept, Circuit City generated the highest total return to shareholders of any company on the New York Stock Exchange. From 82 to 99, Circuit City generated cumulative stock returns 22 times better than the market, handily beating Intel, Walmart, GE, Hewlett Packard, and Coca-Cola. Not surprisingly, Circuit City then found itself a prime subject for media attention. Whereas we found no articles of any significance in the decade leading up to the transition, we found 97 articles worth examining in the decade after the transition, 22 of them significant pieces. It's as if the company hadn't even existed prior to that, despite having been traded on a major stock exchange since 1968, and despite the remarkable progress made by Wurzel and his team in the decade leading up to the breakthrough point. The Circuit City experience reflects a common pattern. In case after case, we found fewer articles in the decade leading up to the point of transition than in the decade after, by an average factor of nearly three times. Now, does that really surprise anyone though? I'm not saying it's not significant to point out, especially if you're gonna lead into like an expanded point on that, but does that surprise anyone? I feel only the most, not necessarily bad people, but the most boring people would actually be surprised by that and think there is anything out of the ordinary about the company only being recognized in the media after a lot of the real work had already been done. For example, Ken Iverson and Sam Stiegel began turning the core flywheel in 65. For 10 years, no one paid any attention, certainly not the financial press or other steel companies. If you asked executives at Bethlehem Steel or U.S. Steel about the Nucor threat by 1970, they would have laughed in 1970. Uh, If they even recognized the name at all, which is doubtful. Nice, nice burn. By 75, the year of its transition point on the stock charts, Nucor had already built its third mini-mill, long established its unique culture of productivity, and was well on its way to becoming the most profitable steel company in America. Yet the first major article in Business Week did not appear until 78, 13 years after the start of the transition, and not in fortune until 16 years out. From 65 to 75, we found only 11 articles on Nucor, none of them significant. Then from 76 through 95, we collected 96 articles on Nucor, 40 of them being major profiles or nationally prominent features. Now, you might be thinking, but we should expect that. Of course, these companies will get more coverage after they became wildly successful. What's so important about that? And now we have a box to decide. I'm actually looking forward to how he addresses this. Here's what's important. We've allowed the way transitions look from the outside to drive our perception of what they must feel like to those going through them on the inside. From the outside, they look like dramatic, almost revolutionary breakthroughs. But from the inside, they feel completely different, more like an organic development process. All right. I think that was well done. I think that got the point across. And similar to what I was saying, but just his take on it. He's not saying, like, enjoy the day-to-day work, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a similar idea. Picture an egg just sitting there. Okay, really? You did it, man. You pulled it off. Let's not beat the dead horse. No one pays it much attention until, one day, the egg cracks open and out jumps a chicken. That's kind of a funny thing. All right, continue. All the major magazines and newspapers jump on the event, writing feature stories. The transformation of egg to chicken. The remarkable revolution of the egg. Stunning turnaround at egg. As if the egg had undergone some overnight metamorphosis, radically altering itself into a chicken. All right, I'm smiling. I like this now. But what does it look like from the chicken's point of view? It's a completely different story. While the world ignored this dormant-looking chicken, uh, dormant-looking egg, the chicken was evolving, growing, developing, incubating. From the chicken's point of view, cracking the egg is simply one more step in a long chain of steps leading up to that moment. A big step, to be sure, but hardly the radical single-step transformation it looks like from those watching from the outside. It's a silly analogy, granted, but I'm using it to highlight a very important finding from our research. We kept thinking that we'd find the one big thing, the miracle moment, that defined a breakthrough. We even pushed for it in our interviews. But the good-to-great company executives simply could not pinpoint a single key event or moment in time. Frequently, they chafed. Chaffed? The... Chafe. Chafe of something restrictive or too tight. Okay, yeah two, rub a part of the body to restore warmth or sensation. Okay, well. Wow. Frequently they chafed against the whole idea of allocating points and prioritizing factors. I guess like it, it they provided resistance to it, is what he's saying. In every good to great company, at least one of the interviewees gave an unprompted admonishment, saying something along the lines of, Look, you can't dissect this thing into a series of nice little boxes and factors, or identify the moment of aha, or the one big thing. It was a whole bunch of interlocking pieces that built one upon another. I mean, the thing is, there's a couple things. One, there's like a uh, like a story process, um, like a, what's the word I'm looking for? Not novel, but like a narrative Uh, We create these narratives, right? And then that's the way we make something fit a clean narrative is like you need an event to symbolize that work. So it's much easier to represent as like a single event. Also, I think it's going to catch people's interest more if you present things that way because, of course... For a company to exist for 10 years and like get better over 10 years, you have to be fucking going to work, grinding it out for every day of those 10 years. I mean, that's just straightforward. That's as straightforward as it gets. But there's like some subtle thing in the back of your mind, maybe when you read about the aha moment where it's like, if I could just figure out what that one thing is, then I won't have to do all that work. You know, it's not exactly that, but I think that's there somewhere in the background influencing things. Even in the most dramatic case in our study, Kimberly Clark selling the mills, the executives described an organic cumulative process. Darwin did not change the direction of the company overnight, said one Kimberly Clark executive. He evolved it over time. Oh, yes. I was waiting for a Darwin joke this whole time. The transition wasn't like night and day, said another. It was gradual, and I don't think it was entirely clear to everybody until a few years into it. Of course, selling the mills was a gigantic push on the flywheel, but it was only one push. After selling the mills, the full transformation into the number one paper-based consumer products company required thousands of additional pushes on the flywheel, big and small, accumulated one on top of the other. It took years to gain enough momentum for the press to openly herald Kimberly Clark's shift from good to great. Forbes wrote, When Kimberly Clark decided to go head-to-head against P&G, This magazine predicted disaster. What a dumb idea. As it turns out, it wasn't a dumb idea. It was a smart idea. Jesus Christ, business people are so fucking boring. This magazine predicted disaster. What a dumb idea. As it turns out, it wasn't a dumb idea. It was a smart idea. Like, where is the fucking editor in that? There's nothing... Like, you really feel that was important to get your message across, all those extra words? You couldn't punch that up a little? The amount of time between the two Forbes articles? 21 years. Yeah, well, they're not really actually writing about what goes on in the company, even if that seems that way. All they're really writing about is the success, right? Because that makes the headlines. No one... No one gives a shit if you write a a thing about a company. Even if you could find them, it's easier to find them, you know, when you see a a bunch of money being made. Uh, It's going to stand out. But even if you could find a company doing a good job quietly, like, that's not going to sell copies of Forbes. It's just not. It's almost like a fantasy thing. I mean, I know I'm really, like, expanding beyond what's, yeah, I, I'm really like, I don't want to say deep, but taking it far. But there is an element of like people reading it as fiction, I think, for something like that. Like there's an element of a uh I mean, just the way I was saying, people want to pretend that one like really good idea could make it so they don't have to work hard anymore. Like uh there is like a fantasy element the same way someone might read a romance novel and like on some part of their, you know, psyche, they're living it through that. This is like them living vicariously through this company, like experiencing the success, you know, as opposed to just like reading it as an instructional thing, right? I think that's an important thing to point out. I mean, maybe not important, but I think it's insightful. <laughs> I don't know. You can't probably do anything productive with that, but uh all right. Well, back to our regularly regularly, back to our regular regularly scheduled program, which is a funny misstep to make because uh, I wasn't reading that; I just said that. So to mispronounce the G—that's interesting, right? Am I just going too deep? I feel like there's something weird about that. Who says regularly unless unless you're like a kindergartner learning to read? While working on the project, we asked. Uh, we made a habit of asking execs who visited our research laboratory what they would want to know from the research. One CEO asked, what did they call what they were doing? Did they have a name for it? How did they talk about it at the time? It's a great question, and we went back to look. The astounding answer, they didn't call it anything. I'll tell you what they call it, they call it good Christian values. The good to great companies had no name for their transformations. There was no launch event, no tagline, no programmatic feel whatsoever. Some execs said that they weren't even aware that a major transformation was underway until they were well into it. It was often more obvious to them after the fact than at the time. Then it began to dawn on us. There was no miracle moment. Although it may have looked like, well, yeah, you managed to take like, it's a, it's quite ironic to expand unnecessarily on the idea that there is no miracle moment. I guess it's not ironic. I guess it's appropriate. But still sucks. Although it may have looked like a single stroke breakthrough to those peering in from the outside, it was anything but that to people experiencing the transformation from within. Rather, it was a quiet, deliberate process of figuring out what needed to be done to create the best future results, then simply taking those steps, one after the other, turn by turn of the flywheel. After pushing on that flywheel in a consistent direction over an extended period of time, they'd inevitably hit a point of breakthrough. Here's a table, no miracle moment in good to great. Representative, quotes from the interviews. Abbott. It wasn't a... So, these aren't even examples. These are just quotes of the people saying... This is literally going to be how many of them are, 9 or 11? I think it's 11 companies that we look at. This is just going to be the same thing said 11 different times. Abbott. It wasn't a blinding flash or sudden revelation from above. Our change was a major change and yet in many respects simply a series of incremental changes. This is what made that change successful. We did this in a nice stepwise way and there were always a lot of common denominators between what we'd already mastered and what we were embarking on. Circuit City. The transition to focus on the Superstore didn't happen overnight. We first considered the concept in 74, but we didn't convert fully to circuit city superstores until about 10 years later after we'd refined the concept and built enough momentum to bet our whole future on it. All right. I think that's carries something there. Uh, Cause there is a tendency to think like, like even my mind kind of went there in the middle of that sentence. Like, Oh, imagine if they had just known and then they fully converted to the superstores. like, After two years instead of ten years. You know, but they also were refining it over that time. The concept of the superstore had not been fleshed out yet. Fannie Mae, there was no one magical event, no one turning point. You know what's annoying about this is everyone, even within the individual quotes, has to say the same thing in two different ways. (laughs) Like, they have to say no magical event, no turning point. No one just says it once. It was a combination of things, more of an evolution, though the end results were dramatic. Gillette, we didn't really make a big conscious decision or launch a program or launch a big program to initiate major change. Individually and collectively, we were coming to conclusions about what we could do dramatically to improve our performance. Kimberly Clark, I don't think it was done as bluntly as it sounds. These things don't happen overnight. They grow. The ideas grow and mushroom and come into being. Kruger, it wasn't a flash from the blue. We had all been watching experimental superstores develop, and we were pretty well persuaded that the industry would go that way. The major thing that Lyle did was say that we're going we're, to we're change beginning now on a very deliberate basis. Nucor, we did not make a decision that this, was the, that this was what we stood for at any specific moment. It evolved through many agonizing arguments and fights. I'm not sure that we knew exactly what we were fighting for until we looked back and said that we were fighting to establish who we were going to be. Philip Morris, it's impossible to think of one big thing that would exemplify a shift from good to great, because our success was evolutionary as opposed to revolutionary, building success upon success. I don't know that there was any single event. Pitney Bowes, we didn't talk so much of change. We recognized early on, not so much that we needed to change, but that we needed to evolve which recognizes that we've got to do things differently. We realize that evolution is a whole different concept than change. Walgreens, there was no seminal meeting or epiphany moment, no one big bright light that came on like a light bulb. It was sort of an evolution thing. And Wells Fargo, it wasn't a single switch that that was thrown on at one time. Little by little, the themes became more apparent and stronger. When Carl became CEO, there wasn't any great wrenching. Dick led one stage of evolution and Carl the next. And it just proceeded smoothly, rather than an abrupt shift. (sighs) Table summary, my favorite part. A table titled No Miracle Moment in Good to Great Companies shows the quotes of representatives from interviews. It shows the quotes from good to great companies like, okay, those companies, I'm not going to fucking read their names again. A table shows the quotes of reps from interviews. It shows the quotes from good to great companies like, okay, same fucking, what the fuck? When teaching this point, I sometimes use this as an example from outside my research that perfectly illustrates the idea. The UCLA Bruins basketball dynasty of the 60s and early 70s. Most basketball fans know that the Bruins won 10 NCAA championships in 12 years, at one point assembling a 60-game winning streak under the legendary coach John Wooden. But do you know how many years Wooden coached the Bruins before his NCAA championship? 15. From 48 to 63, Wooden worked in relative obscurity before winning his first championship in 64. Year by year, Coach Wooden built the underlying foundations, developing a recruiting system, implementing a consistent philosophy, and refining the full-court press style of play. No one paid too much attention to the quiet, soft-spoken coach and his team until, wham, they hit breakthrough and systematically crushed every serious competitor for more than a decade. Like the Wooden Dynasty, lasting transformations from good to great follow a general pattern of build-up followed by breakthrough. In some cases, the build-up to breakthrough stage takes a long time. In other cases, a short time. At Circuit City, the build-up lasted nine years. At Newcore, ten. Whereas Gillette, it took only five. At Tranny Mae, three. And Penny Bowes, two. <laughs> so stupid. But no matter how short or long it took, every good and great transformation followed the same basic pattern. Accumulating momentum turn by turn of the flywheel until buildup transformed into breakthrough. Next section, not just a luxury of circumstance. Let me sum this up. They weren't just at the right place at the right time. Okay, moving on to the next one. It's important to understand that the following the the build-up breakthrough flywheel model is not just a luxury of circumstance. People who say, hey, but we've got constraints that prevent us from taking this longer-term approach should keep in mind that the good-to-great companies follow this model no matter how dire the short-term circumstances. Deregulation in the case of Wells Fargo. Oh, no. Looming bankruptcy in the cases of Newcorn, Circuit City, potential takeover threats in the cases of Gillette and Kroger, or million-dollar-a-day losses in the case of Fannie Mae. I mean, there is a certain kind of fortuity that comes with the ability to stay open more than a day when you're taking a million dollars in losses a day, but... Moving on, this also applies to managing the short-term pressures of Wall Street. I just don't agree with those who say you can't build an adoring company because Wall Street won't let you, said David Maxwell of Fannie Mae. We communicated with analysts to educate them on what we were doing and what we were, where we were going. At first, a lot of people didn't buy into that. You just have to accept that. But once we got through the dark days, we responded by doing better every single year. Okay, so that's exactly what I'm talking about. It's like, um, I forget how directly we've said this, but um, the way people analyze stock markets is a perfect example of this type of short-term thinking. Is everyone loves to pretend like there's so much bullshit economic analysis out there, and it's because we hold people to these like quarter things. Like, oh, you can say this company didn't meet expectations on how it's doing poorly for this quarter, and it doesn't even have to like lose money. It's just like it's not meeting the expectations we set. Which is really just saying things didn't like there's more than we could predict, you know, like there's <clears throat> but then they're pressured to make changes because once it's a publicly traded thing, the public is involved. It's really a weird thing. And I think it is very true that uh it's difficult to focus on the long term when you're being publicly traded. Um, and I think similar to the joke I just made, I think he is not taking into account the privilege that comes with not being immediately bankrupt or closed down or stopped through intervention when you are losing a million dollars a day. You just have to accept that. But once we got through the dark days, we responded by doing better every single year. After a few years, because of our actual results, we became a hot stock and never looked back. And a hot stock it was. During Maxwell's first two years, the stock lagged behind the market, but then it took off. From the end of 1984 to the year 2000, $1 invested in Fannie Mae multiplied 64 times, beating the general market, including the wildly inflated NASDAQ of the early of the late 90s, by nearly six times. I've got the blue box aside. the good to great companies were subject to the same short-term pressures from wall street as the comparisons yet unlike the comparison companies they had the patience and discipline to follow the build-up breakthrough flywheel model despite these pressures and in the end they attained extraordinary results by wall street's own measure of success The key, we learned, is to harness the flywheel to manage these short-term pressures. One particularly elegant method for doing so came from Abbott Laboratories, using a mechanism it called the Blue Plans. Each year, Abbott would tell Wall Street analysts that it expected to grow earnings a specific amount, say 15%. At the same time, it would set an internal goal of a much higher growth rate, say 25%, or even 30%. Meanwhile, it kept a rank-ordered list of proposed entrepreneurial projects that had not yet been funded. The Blue Plans. Toward the end of the year, Abbott would pick a number that exceeded analyst expectations, but that fell short of its actual growth. It would then take the difference between the Make Analysts Happy growth and the actual growth and channel those funds into the Blue Plans. It was a brilliant mechanism for managing short-term pressures while systematically investing in the future. Seems pretty cool. We found no evidence of anything like the blue plans at Abbott's comparison company. Instead, Upjohn executives would pump up the stock with a sales job. Buy into our future, in quotes. Reverently intoning the phrase, investing for the long term, especially when the company failed to deliver current results. Upjohn continually threw money after harebrained projects like its Rogaine baldness cure, attempting to circumvent buildup and jump right to a breakthrough with a big hit. Rogaine wasn't a big hit? I feel like that's a wildly popular product. Indeed, Upjohn reminded us of a gambler, putting a lot of chips on red at Las Vegas and saying, See, we're investing for the future. Of course, when the future arrived, the promised results rarely appeared. Not surprisingly, Abbott became a consistent performer and a favorite, A favorite holding on Wall Street, while Upjohn became a consistent disappointment. I'm right here, you guys. From 1959 to Abbott's point of breakthrough in 74, the two stocks roughly tracked each other. Then they dramatically diverged, with Upjohn falling more than six times behind Abbott before being acquired in 1995. Like Fannie Mae and Abbott, all the good-to-great companies effectively managed Wall Street during their build-up breakthrough years, and they saw no contradiction between the two they simply focused on accumulating results often practicing the time honored discipline of underpromising and overdelivering and as the results began to accumulate as the flywheel built momentum the investing community came along with great enthusiasm the flywheel effect we haven't covered that already the good to great companies understood a simple truth tremendous power exists in the face in the fact of continued improvements it should be the face, in the face of continued improvements and the delivery of results. No, maybe it's the fact. Tremendous power, either way, tremendous shouldn't be capitalized. Tremendous power exists in the fact of continued improvements and the delivery of results. Point to tangible accomplishments, however incremental at first, and show how these steps fit into the context of an overall concept that will work. When you do this in such a way that people will see and feel the buildup of momentum, they will line up with enthusiasm. We came to call this the flywheel effect, and it applies not only to outside investors, but also to internal constituent groups. We have a little flywheel diagram here. Steps forward, consistent with hedgehog concept, goes to accumulating visible results, goes to people lining up energized results, goes to flywheel builds momentum, which goes back to steps forward, consistent with hedgehog concept. Let me share a story from the research. At a pivotal point in the study, members of the research team nearly revolted. Throwing their interview notes on the table, they asked, do we have to keep asking that stupid question? What stupid question, I asked? The one about commitment, alignment, and how they manage change. It's not a stupid question, I replied. It's one of the most important. Well, said one team member, a lot of the execs who made the transition, well, they think it's a stupid question. Some don't even understand the question. Yes, we need to keep asking it, I said. We need to be consistent across the interviews. And besides, it's even more interesting that they don't understand the question. So keep probing. We've got to understand how they overcame resistance to change and got people lined up. I feel they expected to find that getting everyone lined up, creating alignment, to use the jargon, would be one of the top challenges faced by executives working to turn good into great. After all, nearly every exec who'd visited the laboratory had asked this question in one form or another. How do we get the boat turned? How do people get committed to the new vision? How do we motivate people to line up? How do we get people to embrace change? To my great surprise, we did not find the question of alignment to be a key challenge faced by the good-to-great leaders. Little box. Clearly, the good-to-great companies did get incredible commitment and alignment. They artfully managed change, but they never really spent much time thinking about it. It was utterly transparent to them. We learned that under the right conditions, the problems of commitment, alignment, motivation, and change just melt away. They largely take care of themselves. I hope there's an example coming up. Consider Kroger. How do you get a company of over 50,000 people, cashiers, baggers, shelf stockers, produce washers, and so forth, to embrace a radical new strategy that will eventually change virtually every aspect of how the company builds and runs grocery stores? The answer is you don't. Not in one big event or program, anyway. Jim Herring, the Level 5 leader who initiated the transformation of Kroger, told us that he avoided any attempts at hoopla and motivation. Instead, he and his team began turning the flywheel, creating tangible evidence that their plans made sense. "'We presented what we were doing in such a way that people saw our accomplishments,' said Herring. "'We tried to bring our plans to successful conclusions, step by step, so that the mass of people would gain confidence from the success, not just the words.'" Harry understood that the way to get people lined up behind a bold new vision is to turn the flywheel consistent with that vision. From two turns to four, then four to eight, then eight to sixteen, and then to say, see what we're doing and how well it's working? Extrapolate from that, and that's where we're going. The good to great companies tended not to publicly proclaim big goals at the outset. Rather, they began to spin the flywheel, understanding to action, step-by-step, turn-after-turn. After After the flywheel built momentum, they'd look up and say, hey, if we just keep pushing on this thing, there's no reason we can't accomplish X. For example, Nucor began turning the flywheel on 65, at first just trying to avoid bankruptcy, then later building its first steel mills because it could not find a reliable supplier. Newcore people discovered that they had a gnat for making better steel and cheaper than anyone else. So they built two, then three additional mini-mills. They gained customers, then more customers, then more customers. Whoosh! The flywheel built momentum, turn by turn, month by month, year by year. Then, around 1975, it dawned on the Nucor people that if they just kept pushing on the flywheel, they could become the number one most profitable steel company in America. Explained Marvin Pullman, I remember talking with Ken Iverson in 75, and he said, Marv, I think one can become the number one steel company in the U.S. 1975! And I said to him, now, Ken, when are you going to be number one? I don't know, he said, but if we just keep doing what we're doing, there's no reason why we can't become number one. It took over two decades, but Nucor kept pushing the flywheel, eventually generating greater profits than any other steel company on the Fortune 1000 list. Here we have the blue box decide. when you let the flywheel do the talking. You don't need to fervently communicate your goals. People can just extrapolate from the momentum of the flywheel for themselves. Hey, if we just keep doing this, look where we can go. As people decide among themselves to turn the fact of potential into the fact of results, the goal almost sets itself. Stop and think about that for a moment. No, I will not. What do the right people want more than almost anything else? They want to be part of a winning team. They want to contribute to producing visible, tangible results. They want to feel the excitement of being involved in something that just flat out works. When the right people see a simple plan born of confronting the brutal facts, a plan developed from understanding not bravado, they're likely to say that'll work. Count me in. When they see the monolithic unity of the executive team behind the simple plan and the selfless, dedicated qualities of level 5 leadership, they'll drop their cynicism. When people begin to feel a magic of momentum, when they begin to see tangible results, when they can feel the flywheel beginning to build speed, that's when the of people line up to throw their shoulders against the wheel and push. The Doom Loop. We found a very different pattern at the comparison companies. Instead of a quiet, deliberate process of figuring out what needed to be done, then simply doing it, the comparison companies frequently launch new programs, often with great fanfare and hoopla aimed at motivating the troops, only to see the programs fail to produce sustained results. They sought the single defining action, the grand program, the one killer invention, the miracle moment that would allow them to skip the arduous build-up stage and jump right to the breakthrough. They would push the flywheel in one direction, then stop, change course, and throw it in a new direction. And then they'd stop, change course, and throw it in yet another direction. After years of lurching back and forth, the comparison companies failed to build sustained momentum and fell instead into what we came to call the Doom Loop. Consider the case of Warner Lambert, the direct comparison company to Gillette. In 1979, Warner Lambert told Business Week that it aimed to be a leading consumer products company. One year later, in 1980, it did an abrupt about-face and turned its sights on healthcare, saying, Our flat-out aim is to go after Merck, Lilly, SmithKline, everybody and his brother. In 1981, the company reversed course yet again and returned to diversification in consumer goods. Six years later, in 87, Warner Lambert did another U-turn, away from consumer goods to try once again to be like Merck. At the same time, the company spent three times as much on consumer goods advertising as on R&D, a somewhat puzzling strategy for a company trying to beat Merck. In the 90s, reaction to Clinton-era healthcare reform, the company threw itself into reverse yet again and re-embraced diversification in consumer brands. Each new Warner Lambert CEO brought his own program and halted the momentum of his predecessor. Ward Hagen tried to create a breakthrough with an expensive acquisition in the hospital supply business in 82. Three years later, his successor, Joe Williams, extracted Warner Lambert from the hospital supply business and took a $550 million write-off. He tried to focus the company on beating Merck, but his successor threw the company back to diversification and consumer goods. And so it went back and forth, lurch and thrash, with each CEO trying to make a mark with his own program. From 1979 through 1998, Warner Lambert underwent three major restructurings, one per CEO, hacking away 20,000 people in search of quick breakthrough results. Time and again, the company would attain a burst of results, then slacken, never attaining the sustained momentum of a build-up breakthrough we flywheel. Stock returns flattened relative to the market, and Warner-Lambert just appeared as an independent company, swallowed up by Pfizer. The Warner-Lambert case is extreme, but we found some version of the Doom Loop in every comparison company. While the specific permutations of the Doom Loop varied from company to company, there were some highly prevalent patterns, two of which deserve particular note. The misguided use of acquisitions and the selection of leaders who undid the work of previous generations. The misguided use of acquisitions. Peter Drucker once observed that the drive for mergers and acquisitions comes less from sound reasoning and more from the fact that doing deals is a much more exciting way to spend your day than doing actual work. Indeed the comparison companies would have well understood the popular bumper sticker from the 80s when the going gets tough we go shopping. Wow. If I had seen that as a youth I, I might be dead right now. Uh, to understand the role of I don't know. I don't know what that means. To understand the role of acquisitions in the process of going from good to great, we undertook a systematic qualitative and quantitative analysis of all acquisitions and divestitures in all the companies in our study, from 10 years before the transition date through 1998. While we noticed no particular pattern in the amount of scale of acquisitions, we did notice a significant difference in the success rate of the acquisitions in the good-to-great companies versus the comparisons. Bucks decide, why did the good to great companies have a substantially higher success rate with acquisitions, especially major acquisitions? The key to their success was that their big acquisitions generally took place after development of the hedgehog concept, and after the flywheel had built significant momentum. They used acquisitions as an accelerator of flywheel momentum, not a creator of it. Oh, so you mean like a catalyst? In contrast, the comparison companies frequently tried to jump right th- right to breakthrough via an acquisition or merger. It never worked. Often with their core business under siege, the comparison companies would dive into a big acquisition as a way to increase growth, diversify away their troubles, or make a CEO look good. Yet they never addressed the fundamental question, what can we do better than any other company in the world that fits our economic denominator and that we have passion for? They never learned the simple truth that, while you can buy your way to growth, you absolutely cannot buy your way to greatness. Two big mediocrities joined together never make one great company. Leaders who stopped the flywheel. The other frequently observed doom loop pattern is that of new leaders who stepped in, stopped an already spinning flywheel, and threw it in an entirely new direction. Consider Harris Corporation. which applied many of the good-to-great concepts in the early 60s and began a classic build-up process that led to breakthrough results. George Dively and his successor, Richard Tulis identified a hedgehog concept, based on the understanding that Harris could be best in the world at applying technology to printing and communications, although it did not adhere to this concept with perfect discipline. Toulouse had a penchant for straying a bit outside the three circles. The company did make enough progress to produce significant results. It looked like a promising candidate for a good-to-great transformation, hitting breakthrough in 75. Then the flywheel came to a grinding halt. In 1978, Joseph Boyd became chief executive. Boyd had previously been with Radiation Incorporated, a corporation acquired by Harris years earlier. His first decision as CEO was to move the company headquarters from Cleveland to Melbourne, Florida, Radiation's hometown, and the location of Boyd's house and 47-foot powerboat, The Lazy Rascal. Amazing. In 1983, Boyd threw a giant wrench into the flywheel by divesting the printing business. At the time, Harris was the number one producer of printing equipment in the world. The printing business was one of the most profitable parts of the company, generating nearly a third of total operating profits. What did Boyd do with the proceeds from selling off this corporate gem? He threw the company headlong into the office automation business. But could Harris become the best in the world in office automation? Not likely. Horrendous software development problems delayed introduction of Harris's first workstation as the company stumbled onto the battlefield to confront IBM, DEC, and Wang. Then, in an attempt to jump right to a new breakthrough, Harris spent a third of its entire corporate net worth to buy Lanier Business Products, a company in the low-end word processing business. Computer World magazine wrote, Boyd targeted the automated office as a key. Unfortunately for Harris, the company had everything but an office product. The attempt to design and market a word processing system met with dismal failure, out of tune with the market, and had to be scrapped before introduction. The flywheel, which had been spinning with great momentum after Dively and Tullis, became detached from the axle, wobbled into the air, then crashed to a grinding halt. From the end of 73 to the end of 78 Harris beat the market by more than five times, but from the end of 78 to the end of 83, Harris fell 39% behind the market, and by 1988, it had fallen over 70% behind. The doom loop replaced the flywheel. The flywheel as a wraparound idea. When I look over the good to great transformations, the one word that keeps coming to mind is consistency. Another word offered to me by physics professor R.J. Peterson is coherence. What is 1 plus 1, he asked, then paused for effect. 4! In physics, we've been talking about the idea of coherence, the magnifying effect of one factor upon another. In reading about the flywheel, I couldn't help but think of the principle of coherence. However, you phrase it, the basic idea is the same. Each piece of the system reinforces the other parts of the system to form an integrated whole that is much more powerful than the sum of the parts. It is only through consistency over time, through multiple generations, that you get maximum results. In a sense, everything in this book is an exploration and description of the pieces of the build up to breakthrough flywheel pattern. In standing back to survey the overall framework, we see that every factor works together to create this pattern, and each component produces a push on the flywheel. How to tell if you're on the flywheel or in the doom loop. Signs that you're on the flywheel, good to great companies. First signs you're in the doom loop comparison companies. A would follow a pattern of buildup leading to breakthrough. B would skip buildup and jump right to breakthrough. A, would reach breakthrough by an accumulation of steps, one after the other, turn by turn of the flywheel. Feels like an organic evolutionary process. B, would implement big programs, radical change efforts, dramatic revolutions, chronic restructuring, always looking for a miracle moment or a new savior. A, would confront the brutal facts to see clearly what steps must be taken to build momentum while B would embrace fads and engage in management hoopla, rather than confront the brutal facts. A would attain consistency with the clear hedgehog concept, resolutely staying within the three circles, while B would demonstrate chronic inconsistency, lurching back and forth and straying far outside the circles. A would follow the pattern of disciplined people, first two, disciplined thought, disciplined action. B would jump right to action without disciplined thought, and without first getting the right people on the bus. A would harness appropriate technologies to your hedgehog concept to accelerate momentum. And B would run about like Chicken Little in the reaction to technology change, fearful of being left behind. A would make major acquisitions after breakthrough, if at all, to accelerate momentum. B, would make major acquisitions before a breakthrough in a doomed attempt to create momentum. A, would spend little energy trying to motivate or align people. The momentum of the flywheel is infectious. B, would spend a lot of energy trying to align and motivate people, rallying them around new visions. A, let results do most of the talking. B, sell the future to compensate for lack of results. And finally, A would maintain consistency over time. Each generation builds on the work of previous generations. The flywheel continues to build momentum. And B says, demonstrate inconsistency over time. Each new leader brings a radical new path. The flywheel grants to a halt. And the doom loop begins anew. Table summary, I will not be doing that. That is just offensive. It all starts with level 5 leaders, who naturally gravitate toward the flywheel model. They're less interested in flashy programs that make it look like they're leading with a capital L. They're more interested in the quiet, deliberate process of pushing on the flywheel to produce results with a capital R. Mm, I think you missed the point there, but... Getting the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus, and the right people in the right seats... Hmm, these are all crucial steps in the early stages of build-up, very important pushes on the flywheel. Equally important is to remember the Stockdale Paradox. We're not going to hit breakthrough by Christmas, but if we keep pushing in the right direction, we will eventually hit breakthrough. This process of confronting the brutal facts helps you see the obvious, albeit difficult, steps that must be taken to turn the flywheel. Faith in the end game helps you live through the months or years of build-up. Next, when you attain deep understanding about the three circles of your hedgehog concept and begin to push in a direction consistent with that understanding, you hit breakthrough momentum and accelerate with key accelerators, chief among them pioneering the application of technology tied directly back to your three circles. Ultimately, to reach breakthrough means having the discipline to make a series of good decisions consistent with your hedgehog concept. Disciplined action, following from disciplined people who exercise disciplined thought. That's it. That's the essence of the breakthrough process. In short, if you diligently and successfully apply each concept in the framework, and you continue to push in a consistent direction on the flywheel, accumulating momentum step-by-step and turn-by-turn, you will eventually reach breakthrough. Breakthrough. It might not happen today or tomorrow or next week. It might not happen Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday. It might not happen Friday or Saturday. It might not even happen next year, but it will happen. I made up the Monday-Tuesday part, but... And when it does, you will face an entirely new set of challenges how to accelerate momentum in response to ever-rising expectations, and how to ensure that the flywheel continues to turn along into the future. In short, your challenge will no longer be how to go from good to great, but how to go from great to enduring great. And that is the subject of the last chapter. Why is he telling us what the subject of the last chapter was after we read it? I want to know what the subject of the next chapter is. Right, guys? <laughs> uh, credit for the terms build-up and breakthrough should go through David S. Landis and his book, The Wealth and Poverty of Nations. Why some are so rich and some so poor. Wow, that sounds like it's just going to be a racist book. doesn't have to be, but it feels like it will be. On page 200, also build-up and breakthrough, not breakthrough concepts. On page 200, Landis writes, The question is really twofold. First, why and how did any c- country break through the crust of habit and conventional knowledge to this new mode of production? Turning to the first, I would stress build up the accumulation of knowledge and know-how and breakthrough, reaching and passing thresholds. When we read this paragraph, we noted its applicability to our study and decided to adopt these terms in describing the good to great companies. You might also call them white, All right, we got the chapter summary. I'll read this next time. Good night.